My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Train Fully podcast, where we dive deep into golf fitness. I am your host, Thomas Malchow. Every episode, we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you enhance your performance and gain an edge in your game. If you find our podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, in this episode, we're talking about sleep, and we're very fortunate to have Dr. Ian Dunikin joining us. Ian has a PhD in sleep and performance, and he works with elite and professional athletes from all over the world and from a wide range of sports, including Formula One racing, basketball, mixed martial arts, and super rugby. So we're going to talk about what happens when we sleep and what we can do to optimize our sleep and enhance our recovery. Now, this is a very important episode because the three most important aspects to health and performance are proper nutrition, regular exercise, and a good night's sleep. Now, for me, for many years, I really undervalued sleep. And as a society, we really undervalue sleep. It's all part of that no pain, no gain culture. But that no pain, no gain approach is flawed. And I'll use the concept of capacity to show you why. Every tissue in our body has a capacity. And what I mean by that is how much that tissue can endure over a given amount of time before it becomes injured, right? So for our body, capacity is a commodity. It's like money. And everything we do is either putting capacity into our body or taking it out. Now, generally speaking, golf is an activity that uses up a lot of our capacity. So we want to modify other areas of our life in a way to increase our capacity. Because the more we have, the more we can spend on the golf course. But how do we do that? Well, when it comes to our training, the best way to increase our capacity is to improve the quality of our movement. Because the better we move, the less we compensate. And compensating drains the body of capacity because it increases wear and tear on our joints and connective tissues. Improving the quality of our movement also enhances our athleticism because it makes our movement more efficient. So if we train to improve the quality of our movement, we will increase our capacity to play and practice more often and enhance our athleticism. And if we can play and practice more and we're more athletic, well, our performance will most certainly improve. But what if we take a different approach? What if instead of training to improve the quality of our movement, we decide to take that no pain, no gain approach to our training? And we begin to focus on trying to lift a certain amount of weight or performing a certain number of repetitions or completing a series of exercises under a certain amount of time. Well, now the focus has shifted and we're not so much focused on the quality of our movement, but rather reaching that intended goal. And when that happens and the fatigue starts to set in and we have that goal in mind, as we become exhausted, we begin to compensate to reach that goal. Now, let me first say that there's nothing wrong with training to exhaustion. In fact, it's encouraged. But the way we increase our capacity, the way we increase our endurance is by building a foundation of perfect movement patterns, not fatigue patterns. So with that in mind, when we're training, we have to stop when our form breaks down. We don't want to compensate because remember, compensating drains the body of capacity. 
And if we're using up a lot of our capacity in the gym by compensating to get through our workouts, well, then we'll have less capacity for golf. Not only that, but those faulty movement patterns, those fatigue patterns that we use when we compensate, if they get reinforced and like if we're doing that on a regular basis and those compensatory patterns become part of our regular movement, well, now we have a movement impairment, which pulls even more capacity out of our body and reduces our athleticism and performance as well. So the whole no pain, no gain approach to training isn't good for golf because it increases our risk for injury, decreases our capacity to play in practice, and reduces our athleticism. Now, if you want to learn more about how to improve the quality of your movement, head over to trainfully.com and pick up the Train Fully Golf Fitness Program. Our program shows you step-by-step how to increase your capacity to play in practice more often and enhance your golf-specific athleticism. So that's how the quality of our training can impact our capacity. But other aspects of our life impact our capacity as well. Most notably, the quality of our nutrition and the quality of our sleep. Now, I'm sure you've heard the idea that we should be training or practicing when our opponent is sleeping. Well, unless your opponent is sleeping till noon, that's probably not the best approach. You're better off just getting a good night's sleep because the research is starting to show how sleep loss reduces our capacity and impacts our performance. Not getting enough sleep pulls so much capacity out of our body that it actually increases our risk for injury. In fact, getting six hours of sleep or less is one of the strongest predictors for injury in sport. And I'll just let that sink in for a minute. Six hours of sleep or less is one of the strongest predictors for injury in sport. Not getting enough sleep also impacts our immune system and makes it more likely that we'll become sick. And if we're sick, well, then we can't play or practice, can we? Sleep also impacts our speed and accuracy. Not getting enough sleep makes us slower and less accurate. Whereas getting high quality sleep makes us faster and more accurate. And we're talking about a 10% improvement in performance just from sleep. What about decision-making? How many times have you noticed that you make bad decisions on holes 16, 17, and 18 that can cost you a good round of golf? Well, our motivation, our focus, our memory, and our learning are all impaired by bad sleep. What all this means is the importance of sleep to athletic performance cannot be overstated. Now, Dr. Ian Dunican is here. He's going to break all of this down for us and explain what happens when we sleep and how we can optimize our sleep to enhance our performance. All right. So joining us today, Dr. Ian Dudekin. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Thomas. All right. Now, you are a very highly sought-after guy. You work with a lot of elite athletes, including Formula One racing. So before we get into why we sleep and what happens during sleep, can you please describe the work that you do with these highly trained athletes? Yeah. So um, basically, I do have kind of two parts to my business, underpinned by another part. So um I work with industry and I also work with elite athletes, but I also do uh, research as well with a couple of different universities and different partnerships as well, which is really focused on those industry applications and uh, elite athletes. But looking at the elite athletes, I suppose to summarize it, um, really what I do is what's called chronobiology, which is uh, chrono meaning time and biology being self-evident. And so we work with athletes around things like how to improve their sleep, how how to manage their sleep over a season, how to deal with what we would call cumulative season fatigue. Um, so a classic example would be like in baseball, 160 games, like 180 days will be a classic example of that. Uh, we also look at travel, fatigue, jet lag, change in time zones, how this affects it. So I've done that like with Formula One, also with um, MMA fighters as well. We also maybe look at the prevalence of a sleep disorder. 
So we can talk a little bit more about that today. There's over 70 recognized sleep disorders. And most people have no idea about that. And so they may have them. And about 20% of people have a sleep disorder and don't even know to have it. So they're the kind of the main things that we would work with athletes, um, you know, in terms of in terms of improvement. But we generally uh, work with athletes when there's a problem. So like any good business, you know, when there's a problem and something to be solved, that's when, that's when I come in and sort of and work with them. Um, and it could be for, you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks or a couple of months or, or up to a season. It depends on the athlete. But my kind of... Um, my goal is to get in, solve the problem and get out as quickly as possible and um, solve the problem, equip the athlete or the team with some knowledge and then move on. So that's, um, that's kind of try, what I try and do with them. All right. So let's jump into it then. Why do we sleep and what happens during sleep? I don't know. <laughs> and, that, and that is true. Like people go, why do we sleep? And we, I go, we don't know. And so I have Professor Russell Foster on my own podcast. Here's my shameless plug for Sleep yeah. for Performance podcast. Well, Russell was on my podcast and he's like a, you know, he's got a knighthood in, in the UK. He's like one of the, the top kind of chronobiologists in the world. Um, and, and I asked Russell and he, he says the same thing as well. We actually fundamentally don't know. Sleep science has really only been around as a discipline or sleep medicine since really like the 60s, early 70s, it's only taken off. And that's the 1960s, 1970s. Um, so we really don't know. The, the sleep history is quite interesting. So if you go back to the times like Aristotle and Socrates, they thought that, you know, vapors were released from food, travel up our esophagus, and these vapors kind of made us feel sleepy. And that's why we, we fell asleep. But, you know, a lot of those kind of food-related theories were around for hundreds of years. But since about the 60s and 70s, that's when kind of sleep medicine took off, especially when we discovered sleep stages. So we don't know the true fundamental or the one reason why we sleep, but we do know from like sleep restriction studies, when we take away an hour or two hours or three hours, or we take away big chunks of sleep, we know what happens to um, people. We also know long-term what happens to people from sleep restriction or sleep loss, and even from sleep deprivation as well, which many of your listeners will be familiar with. You know, you, know, you may have seen like competitions where people stay awake or people are staying awake in, 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 the, in the military, you know, and sort of um, for days on end, and they might be familiar with that. So that was my first real experience with sleep deprivation. I spent five years as an infantry soldier um, in Ireland before I went to university. And that was, um, yeah, that was my first taste of sleep deprivation. We still don't really know is, is, is the answer. We just know that it, a number of different, a number of bad things happen when we don't have enough sleep. Yeah. Wow. So then what, what are the stages? You just mentioned that there's stages to sleep. What are those stages? Yeah. So when we go to sleep at nighttime, so let's take um, an example where somebody goes to bed at 11 o'clock and wakes up at seven o'clock in the morning. We'll use that as a kind of reference example for the, for the podcast today. Well, I just take a sip of coffee. Speaking of sleep. Sorry. It's very <laughs> early in the morning here for me. Um, <laughs> so we go to bed. We, we kind of, you know, I try to initiate sleep. This portion here is called sleep onset latency. This is time it might take you to fall asleep. And generally, this should be somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes. And as you just said there, Thomas, um, speaking of sleep or coffee, if you have a lot of caffeine during the day, and especially if you have caffeine within six hours of the time you go to bed, this may affect your sleep onset latency, so your time to fall asleep. So this should really be happening within 20 to 20, 30 minutes at the max, but 10 to 20 minutes is kind of the, the clinical norms. So when you fall asleep, you go through a number of different stages. You go into what's called stage one, stage two, stage three. People may have heard of stage four. We don't use that anymore. So we just have stage one, two, and three. And we also have REM sleep as well. Now you'll oscillate throughout those stages throughout the night, depending on what your body needs. We don't have the ability as humans to go to bed and kind of tap the side of our head of a button and go, let's get REM. Let's get three, stage three, stage one. We, we can't do that. The body will would basically go into whatever phase that it, it deems to be lacking and, and sort of make that up as quickly as possible. So in general, though, there is a, in, in general, there's a few rules, I suppose, to, to look at or a few kind of things that happen predominantly in the first half of the night. So we'll say from 11 p.m. till about 3 a.m., most people get what we call um, non-REM sleep. So that's stages one, two, and three. Stages one and two are the light stages of sleep, and these are characterized by different things on EEG. And then stage three sleep is the deep sleep. So a lot of people will say that REM sleep is deep sleep. That's actually a misnomer. It's stage three sleep, which is the deep sleep. And then predominantly from three o'clock till 6 a.m. till 7 a.m. is when people get their REM cycles. So this is when people wake up in the morning and you go, oh, wow, I had the craziest dream. You know, I dreamt I was um, 
fighting Conor McGregor or playing yeah. golf with Vijay Singh or, you know, whatever it might be, or <laughs> licking ice with Vancouver Canucks, whatever yeah. it might be. Um, so this is, this is generally what happens. Now, in saying that, that's not always the case. Things will change. So this is just kind of general rules, but these sleep stages occur and they occur for different reasons. So uh, REM sleep is like kind of a psychological repair and reboot. So back, backing up the hard drive overnight and non-REM sleep is really important for physical repair and recovery. So the reason we know that is because when we sleep deprive or sleep restrict people from studies, that's, this is what happens. We see decrements in performance in terms of cognition or physical performance when we look at it over time. And this is why you might see with sleep extension studies, when we increase sleep, we see these metrics actually going up as well. Okay. So then, so then you, you mentioned there that REM sleep is for psychological repair. And then we have that non-REM sleep for physical repair. So then yeah. what would a lack of sleep due to a golfer's ability to say make accurate shots deal with adversity or to uh, maintain focus during a four or five hour round of golf yeah it's it's a it's a good question i think just before we move on to that um a good way to remember this is rem sleep is for the brain and non-rem sleep is for the body so you think brain body brain body so the two phases are really important for different things so in the context of golfers obviously you know people look at golf and i'm not an expert in golf by the way um, but, um, you know, it is a long, a long time out there walking around and keeping sort of physically active. And I know there's been exceptions to that over the years where some golfers aren't very, you know, let's say aesthetically <laughs> pleasing looking on the, on the, on the TV. Uh, I think that's obviously changed over the last 10 to 20 years. And then, um, so the, obviously there's that physical ability to keep, to keep yourself in, in good shape, to keep playing every day. And obviously there's the the injuries around this as well from a musculoskeletal point of view. And actually next week, uh, sorry, in, in about 10 days on my podcast, uh, I have Kendall Yonamoto coming on. Um, the episode has been recorded and uploaded. He's a, he's written a book called the athletic, the, I always forget his name, the athletic fundamentals of golf. I think it's called. So he looks at the biomechanics and the swing. So Kendall's coach like Vijay Singh and, and a few others. Um, so coach Kendall, he's based in Vancouver actually. Um, so, you know, that side of the thing is very important for, for that kind of physical integrity throughout, throughout the day, especially if you're playing lots of games or practicing lots of times as well. And then obviously the REM sleep is really important for your decision-making. So I think there's a lot of strategy in golf as well that probably people don't see or probably don't know, but in terms of, you know, um, your decisions that you make and so on. But then the other one as well, which I think is crucial probably in golf is, uh, is going to be power output, which obviously diminishes with less sleep, but also timing as well. So, I haven't seen a lot of studies in golf that have looked at sleep restriction and sleep loss and its effect on accuracy and, and shooting and so on. Um, and, and there may be some out there, but I just haven't specifically looked at them um, in the last sort of two years. So if anybody has any, please send them through. But we do know from other studies, like in military, when people are sleep deprived, that you know accuracy is definitely affected. And even if you use stimulants like caffeine and so on, the accuracy is still affected. So for example, um, a kind of a parallel example would be in military studies for the sleep deprived people, and then they give them caffeine to see if it'll affect their alertness and, and, and sort of get over those deleterious effects of sleep loss. What they find is that people react very quick. They shoot the gun very quickly, like so the, the, the time to respond to the target is quick, but their shooting accuracy is all over the place. So they have these wild kind of shots that happen. And so I think that would be something to watch out for from a golfer's perspective. If you are sleep deprived or, you know, you've, you've even if you're like a, an amateur golfer um, and you're just trying to beat your mates on the weekend to win some money off them, if you've been working really hard all week, you probably see this yourself where you just, you're just kind of not firing on the weekend, you know, you just have that kind of, oh, not, not kind of in the zone, you know. So that's, right. that's I think, how, what we would probably see in terms of um, golfing outputs. What, how much sleep do we need per night? This is a great question of debate and, and sort of a great, a great point of, of, of argument as well. Um, so the data tells us that um, over the last sort of 40, 50 years, and in general, that 95% of us in the population need between seven to nine hours of sleep. So the first thing that people argue with you is, well, I'm not one of those. <laughs> so it's like if you had a big 
Pareto chart up, like, you know, like an engineering data. And you said like all the data was skewed this way. People think they're all at the other end. So it's like, it's like <laughs> the inverse opposite line. relationship. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like the guy who's, you know, my size, 78 kilos and five foot 10, but thinks he can beat a guy that's six foot 10 and 200 kilos. It just ain't happening. But your sense of, uh, <laughs> your sense of yourself is completely off. And it's the same with sleep as well. We're horrendous at, at measuring and monitoring our own sleep because we're in a state of unconsciousness. But, um, 95% of us need between seven to nine hours sleep. That leaves 5%. So you're going to need roughly two and a half percent of those people and are going to need even more than nine hours sleep a night. And then two and a half percent, you know, need less than seven. And it's probably estimated that between a half a percent and 1% need less than six hours sleep a night. But it's interesting because on average, I would say if I pooled all the athletes I've worked with from super rugby, uh, major league baseball, formula one, Australian rules football, individual athletes that work in, in, in Olympic sports, swimmers, um, MMA athletes, jiu-jitsu athletes. I'd say the average is somewhere between in around six hours and 40 minutes per night. Wow. So it's quite low. Yeah. What about napping? What does napping do t- to the body? And is it something that you would recommend? So napping is an interesting one. And I think we can answer this for just even general population or regardless of sport. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge and the benefits when napping. So if we think about a 24 hour cycle, we you need to get, you know, roughly eight hours of sleep in that 24 hour period. So there's two things happening across a 24 hour period. We have what's called the homeostatic drive for sleep or sleep pressure. We often call this the, the, the S process. So sleep S process. We also have the circadian process, which people may have heard about before. Circa meaning about the meaning of the day, coming from that Latin word. Did you do Latin at school, Thomas? No, no. No, neither did I. I missed it. I missed it by two yeah, years. That one. We had friends. <laughs> um, I don't see many people speaking Latin today, so it's probably, <laughs> probably best I missed it. So we have two things happening. We got the sleep process and then we got the circadian process. So these two things happen. So you may experience the circadian process where you wake up in the morning, takes you a little bit of time to get going. Then you have a little bit of a dip after lunch. Then you feel good in the afternoon. Then you feel good after dinner. And then you feel like you want to sleep again. And then you have the sleep pressure building up over time. So the basic principle of sleep pressure is the longer you're awake, the more tired you are. And the cure for being tired is sleep. That's all it is. It's as simple as that. And then the C curve kind of happens, oscillates over this 24-hour period every day. So this kind of these two processes are happening. So... Um, I lost the question because I was t- too busy giving you a smart arse answer about <laughs> the napping is, is napping. Nap- yeah. Sorry. The napping. So it's really important to identify the periods when you can nap. Right. So the best time to nap is probably going to be between uh, post lunch and about three o'clock. And I just wrote an article yesterday on this as well. I went up on my website and also uh, Salas Optima with McLaren released this as well, where we actually discussed napping. I think we call it to, to nap or not to nap. That is the siesta. <laughs> um, and so siesta being the Spanish word for just nap, but, um, the, the thing is, if you nap, if you nap during the day, we'd recommend that nap should be about 20 to 30 minutes, no longer, because then you start going into those deeper stages of sleep that we, we spoke about. But if you nap during the day, you have to remember you're reducing your sleep pressure. So if we go back to our example of someone going to bed at 11 o'clock at night and getting up at seven o'clock in the morning, that's an eight hour sleep opportunity. And let's say, for example, they get seven hours and then they want to nap during the day. If they're getting a half an hour, that's sleep pressure that's building through the day. If we have a half an hour of sleep, we're reducing that sleep pressure. So if you nap every single day and you sleep overnight, you're really now moving out what's called from a monophasic sleep, one sleep period, to a biphasic sleep period to some degree, because you've got two sleep periods in a day. So if you get yourself into the habit of sleeping every day and then sleeping overnight, you, your time to fall asleep might be delayed now. So instead of falling asleep at 11, it might be 12 because you've had that nap, so you've reduced that sleep pressure. But more importantly, if you miss that nap, you might feel like crap then after that. So if you're going to nap every single day, you need to be able to control your environment. You need to be able to take that time out of your day and you need to be able to completely, you know, control your, your sleep patterns overnight as well. So what I say to people is naps are good if you have the opportunity. They're very helpful on the weekend to make up any sleep loss. But don't build a kind of a system around them to rely on them every single day because you're just not going to be able to achieve it. And if you do have a nap, remember that your sleep pressure that night may be reduced right. and therefore you might not go to bed at the same time. Right. I think, I think like sleep as a performance enhancement strategy is something that I think most people overlook. 
But if we take a look at some of the best athletes in the world, the types of athletes that you work with, they're all putting the work in, right? They all work really hard. And quite often what separates the champions from everybody else is the champions get their rest in. They figure out the best way to recover. They optimize their recovery. So given how important sleep is to our recovery and to our performance, what kind of markers can we use to determine if we are lacking sleep? Before we talk about markers, just to give you a bit of history on on sort of sleep and athletes, when I said about sleep science being around since the 60s and 70s, sleep and athletic performance has really only taken off as a discipline since about 2010. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. So there was a paper released by Michael Estella um, last year. It's open access and I can, I can send you this paper um, on this, but it actually just shows all the kind of sleep and athletic research has been happening over time. Now there's been a few papers since before 2010. So if anybody's jumping on Google Scholar going, well, I found a paper from 1972. Well, yes, there has been, but in general, 90% of that research has happened since, uh, 2010. And you can see the people who've been most active in, in the last 10 years. So th- th- before I give you the markers of what we can look at, I think it's really important to note that we are still ever evolving in the sleep and athletic space. And there is a lack of funding. Nobody funds a lot of this kind of sleep and performance research with teams because the government's not going to fund it. Teams don't want to spend money like doing lots of research at universities. They want an outcome. So it's it's very kind of consultancy based. So I do a hybrid of consultancy and research with athletes, depending on who they are. But to look at the markers, what you should look at, this is, that's an interesting question, actually. And I, I probably will have to think more you know, deeply and longer about it. But in general, the measures that I use are, or my approach is the first thing I do with an athlete or a team is I want to eliminate any sleep disorders or problems. So that might, you know, that might be, and I call this organizational design work. So we need to look at the design of the schedule, what's happening before we start making interventions. Because it's really, it's really sexy to go in and go, oh, Thomas, I'm going to change this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then, and then in three weeks you go, yeah, that's pretty good, but I've got no baseline. I've got no measure. So the first thing I want to do is kind of look at the organizational design of what's going on, whether it's an individual or a team. And so I look at the prevalence of sleep disorders or sleep problems, and I will generally use a series of questionnaires to screen people initially. And then from that, then I will segregate out the people at high risk of different sleep disorders, and then maybe apply more you know, overnight clinical or even in laboratory tests as well. And really what I'm trying to do there is just rule out stuff. I just want to make sure that we don't have any inherent problem. And like I said, at the top of the podcast, we've got 70 sleep disorders. They're from sleep-related breathing disorders like sleep apnea through to periodic leg movement disorder overnight or clinical insomnia. So we have to apply different tools to measure those. Then the other thing I'll do as well is I'll look at the, the training schedules and I look at maybe the travel schedules and I use what's called biomathematical modeling. Um, this was done by the Vancouver Canucks uh, a number of years ago um, in ice hockey. They kind of modeled out the entire season and looked at periods for, with travel where they would be at like low effectiveness and then looked at ways to increase that as well. We did that as well in Super Rugby a number of years ago. I've been using that type of modeling and shift work as well, and it's, it's applicable to, to lots of different industries. I'm currently using it in baseball. So we would look at, we look at those things. So we're looking at the schedule, the travel, the individual athlete, and then we generally create a baseline of measures with the athlete. And so when I create the baseline of measures with the athlete, I'll also look at some questionnaires again, but I'll also look at some wearable technology. And generally to create a baseline of sleep for an athlete, in terms of looking at the sleep latency, which I spoke about, sleep duration, the time to go to bed, the time to wake up. I want to look at all these kind of sleep behaviors. I will generally use some sort of wearable technology um, for that, but I need to collect a minimum of 21 days. So I won't make a decision or I won't make a kind of an inference on one or two nights. I look at 21 days. And the reason being is it's too easy for us as individuals to put on a device and then constantly be obsessed, obsessed with each morning, looking at the data, looking at the data. And so I think that's a word of caution for people that if you're looking at wearable technology, don't wake up each, each morning and be like freaking out that, you know, oh, and you got six hours and 52 minutes and, you know, and, and then the next day, and you got six hours, 29 minutes. Look at the average of your data over a three-week period. Look at long-term sleep behavior, not night by night. Um, you know, try and, try and get the average up first. And the other thing I'd say about wearable technologies, the technologies that tell you about the stages of sleep, 
very, very sketchy. If you go over to my website on Sleep for Performance, you can find links out there to um, like scientific scientific abstracts where I've break, broken down papers like and looked at the differences between the sleep stages on those devices, and and they're not very good. Is the answer, Thomas? So you know, I don't I don't use those type of measures. So so really, what I'm looking for is wearable measures sleep latency, time to fall asleep, time you go to sleep, sleep duration, how much sleep you're getting, the time you wake up. I'm looking at time in bed. I'm looking at all those behavioral things. I'm looking at the sleep problems and sleep disorders in another book. And then I'm also looking at the organizational factors, but the modeling and so on. So they're the kind of ones that, they're all the different ones that I'm looking at when I deal with an athlete. For people out there who are saying, well, that's great, Ian, but what should I look at each and every day? I think there's three probably key measures you should look at from a wearable. Time you fall asleep, sleep duration and the time you wake up and look at look at those over a 21 day period um you know sleep efficiency and sleep stages can be a bit misleading so just look at those three measures and they should give you a really good indication of how you're sleeping and if you don't have a wearable just report yourself what you what you think you're getting and you can start seeing maybe a trend over time as well that can be helpful what what uh, types of wearables would you recommend is there one that's better or the best I don't really recommend wearables, Thomas, because I want to keep I want to keep myself independent. Um, you know, but but you know, it depends on what you're what you're using them for. But in general, most wearable devices can't pick up on sleep stages. So, like those measures I've just said are, are pretty good. The ones I'm using currently at the moment are the Fatigue Science Ready Watch, which is a Vancouver-based company. Um, so I'm using that. That's quite good, especially in industry and shift work, because I can do predictions out for effectiveness and and sort of shift work. Um, I'm using the Aura Ring with a couple of athletes as well individually, and I'm using Fitbits as well. So for me, you know, once they're kind of in that kind of ballpark of, you know, the general wearables, uh, I will use them. And, and for some people, it's it's preference. Some people are like, I am not wearing a watch. I want the ring. I want the Aura Ring, right? So they just will not wear a watch. And so it's easy for athletes to leave the Aura Ring beside their bed and stick it on at nighttime, put it onto the charger in the morning. So whatever works like for the athlete works for me but I don't look at all the measures. I only take out certain measures. And really, if you look at the scientific literature and, and these wearable devices, it's the time at sleep onset, the sleep duration and time awake are the kind of primary measures that we can get out of these devices. What are your thoughts on, on like sleeping aids, like say taking melatonin before bed or sleepy time tea? Yeah, I don't know what's in sleepy time tea. It could be like that. Um, what was that drink in that show? Nighty nighty snoozy snoozy snooze. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was in Fatter Fatter. Do you get Fatter Ted? Have you seen Fatter Ted? I haven't, but I have heard that before. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good um, Irish drama from uh, comedy, not drama, comedy from the 90s. In actual fact, it was so controversial that Irish TV didn't make it. It was actually a British TV show, um, British TV company, Channel 4 that made it. And it was quite controversial in the 90s um, in Ireland because of it was taking the piss out of the Catholic church. So yeah, to have a drink. Is, that, Brown, that, I think that, is Miss Brown's boys, is that Irish as well? Yeah, that came out, that came way after. Like I've been out of Ireland now for nearly 20 years. So I, I, I haven't really been part of that culture, but fatter, fatter Ted in the nineties, pretty good. So if anybody's out there looking for a funny show on you, it's about three priests living on an Island. Um, so yeah, the, the, the priest, the older priest is like a really bad alcoholic, but to give him a, to give him like a sleeping drink called nighty nighty snoozy snoozy snooze and he's asleep for three days. <laughs> so that's why when people say sleepy drinks, that's what I think about. Um, as you can tell, Thomas, I want to be a part-time comedian. So um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's take melatonin first. The, 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 the problem with melatonin is that people, um, you got a few problems actually across the world with melatonin because you might have some international listeners, I suspect. Melatonin, um, whilst it's freely available over the counter in places like Canada, because when I go to Vancouver, I stock up. <laughs> well, it's available over the counter there in the chemist. You can get like three milligrams, five milligrams, 10 milligrams, no problem whatsoever. Um, and the same in the US. But in Australia, it's controlled. You need to get a prescription. And so you will see melatonin over the counter in Australia where I live, even though I'm Irish. So people are probably getting confused now. <laughs> so you get over the counter, but we don't actually know what's in the melatonin when you get over the counter. So you have to control the dose. Um, you can need to check as well from a USADA, WADA sort of perspective as well, because if you're taking that, you may fail a drug test, particularly if you're getting melatonin from some sketchy countries. And um, I've heard cases of that happening before. The other thing as well is people think that melatonin is just like a sleeping tablet. I just take melatonin and I fall asleep. If you take melatonin and you have a circadian rhythm disorder or you're traveling or you have jet lag, you might take melatonin and make yourself worse. 
Oh. So the timing of melatonin is really important as well about what you're trying to do and phase adaptation. And I can't give you a broad answer like or a one size fits all for that. It's going to depend on what's happening in the different factors. But melatonin is helpful and it has been shown to, you know, help people in terms of, you know, sleep onset latency and sort of quality of sleep and so on. But I think, again, there is lots of low hanging fruit that people can do. You know, sleep hygiene principles, we call them. Lots of things that people can do as opposed to taking melatonin. Because the classic example, Thomas, I see someone works like 10 hours a day, you know, they get up in the morning, five or six o'clock, you know, because they've seen like a, a, you know, a video that's like, get up and train. So they get up and they run or go to the gym. Then they go to work and they want to be this high powered executive, you know, 10 hours a day. Then they come home and they've got two kids and they're bouncing the kids from daycare to home. Then they're like, now I've got to go and do an MBA class. And now I've got to catch up on my emails and you know, they're sitting there having a glass of wine. And then they're like, you know, it's 11, 12 o'clock and they have to be up at five o'clock in the morning. So straight away, they've reduced that sleep opportunity down to like six hours. And they're like, well, I got to go my eight hours of sleep. It's like, well, basic mathematics now are out the window here. Yeah. So they're like, oh, what I should do is take melatonin. So they get into this cycle of like taking sleeping tablets, melatonin at nighttime, these sedatives. Then during the day, they're taking lots of caffeine, you know, and they're using pre-workouts. So they get themselves into this kind of nerdy, you know, this, you know, cycle of stimulants and sedatives, you know, um, and, it, and, it's, and it's just not good over time, you know. And the other thing we see as well from sleep medication is that after 10 days, we see the efficacy of sleep medication wearing off. So long-term sleep meds are, are not actually recommended. In long-term clinical trials or studies that, oh, you know, the data I've seen, not that I've, I've random, but what I've seen at conferences is pretty interesting that over five years, um, things like melatonin and sleeping tablets have less benefit um, compared to things like, we'll say a sleepy tea, chamomile tea, or even cognitive behavioral therapy. So in the long run, they're definitely better. I think one of the benefits of, we'll say a sleepy tea, which has like chamomile or valerian or these type of things in them, I think they're just, they're a good way of having a, a hot beverage after dinner before bed, which just eliminates sources of caffeine. So the you know, less caffeine you have in the evening, the better it's going to be for you as well. But there is some studies that show that chamomile and valerian actually relax people and make them feel a bit more, you know, chilled out before going to bed and even the other one as well which has variable results is even just lavender scent so that's why you might buy an eye pillow and it's scented with lavender because it makes you feel kind of quite relaxed so yeah i think like anything just uh give it a try and see how it works <laughs> what are the some of the other slight sleep hygiene uh techniques that you talked about like what should we be doing i say after dinner as we're starting to prepare to go to bed um yeah so but there's 10 different um hygiene principles that we we discuss and i'm just going to make sure i get through them all here so i've got 10 here that i'll go through <clears throat> we'll do it like a top 10 countdown like the charts yeah in at number 10 <laughs> if you're awake after 20 minutes so i remember i was saying about like it takes about 10 to 20 minutes to fall asleep so if you're awake like for more than 20 minutes even up to 30 minutes do something relaxing get out of bed so don't lie there kind of looking at the wallpaper you know, or looking at the ceiling, just lying there being fully alert, get out of bed and maybe do some relaxing. Do not get up to and start typing emails, you know? So maybe read a boring magazine or, you know, whatever it might be, but get out of bed and stretch. Um, you know, this is definitely something to do. This is the biggest one I see. And at number nine, avoid work within 90 minutes of bed. This is the biggest problem. And this is the divide when people talk about electronic devices before bed. People are like, oh, electronic devices are really bad before bed. Well, in actual fact, the literature is split on that. So there's actually not a, there's not a conclusion that if you look at it objectively and look at all the papers, some papers actually show from laboratory or field-based studies, no effect on sleep. What I suspect that's going on, and I spoke to Russell about this in my podcast, and some other people believe the same, it might be the activity. Because we see in teenagers that, you know, if we have them, you know, kind of watching TV, they fall asleep. But if they're doing violent video gaming, then they're not falling asleep or having lots of awakenings. So I think it could be the activity before bed. So avoiding work within 90 minutes of bed is probably um, a good thing to do. And many, many people in the professional bracket between sort of 25 and 55 these days are sitting on their couch, laptop on, iPhone to the side, scrolling through Instagram, glass of wine while Netflix is on the background. And, you know, you're watching Narcos and trying to answer an email to your boss while sipping on wine then going, shit, what was that? What was that? Rewind that. And you're just like, it's just loads of different stimulus. And, you know, and when I say this in, in talks or on podcasts, people do exactly what you do, Thomas, to kind of laugh because it's so many people are trying to do it. Right. And so, 
you know, avoiding work within 90 minutes of bed. Now, if you want to watch a TV show, you know, maybe watch something nice and boring or lighthearted, like, I don't know, Will and Grace. What was that show you used to have in Canada years ago? We used to get lots of Canadian shows in Ireland. Um, the Littlest Hobo. Oh, yeah. Great show. Great show. Yeah. yeah. I want to sing the song now. I know. <laughs> the funny thing is, I actually used to have it as uh, like a fairly regular thing that I would send to people maybe like five, six years ago. It came back into my circle of friends and we were sending the, 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 the theme song around. Theme song, yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to get it as a ringtone for my phone. I want to look it <laughs> yeah, up now. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, you, if you don't know the Littlest Hobo song, um, the theme tune, look it up. It's such a great show. Coming home after school in the 80s watching that. We had all the, we had all the bad Canadian TV shows. Was there one Beachcombers, was it? Beachcombers, there only were bad TV shows from Canada. There were no good ones. <laughs> Beach. <laughs> oh, man. All right. In the number eight, <laughs> avoid daytime naps more than 20 minutes. So as I said before about the timing of naps and the duration of naps. A little tip here as well. If you're going to have a nap, consume caffeine before the nap. So people go, what? Isn't caffeine bad for sleep? But it takes about half an hour to an hour for caffeine to peak in people's systems. So um, you need to, if you want to have caffeine, you can have it before the nap, fall asleep for 20 minutes. And then when you wake up out of a nap, the caffeine will help you get out of that kind of groggy sleep inertia feeling. So that's a kind of a little tip there that people can do. Make sure your bedroom is comfortable and inviting. So a nice temperature, it's quiet and it's dark. Don't have your bedroom double up as an office. And I know in the times of coronavirus and people working from home, if that is the case, try and make a break between work and bed. Don't just be kind of on your laptop tapping away and then jump into bed, make a kind of a, a break between that. Um, keep pets out of the bedroom as well, if possible. Um, you know, just don't turn your bedroom into a, into a storage area as well. Just have a nice and inviting. It should be a kind of a sanctuary to go to. And for athletes, I see this happen a lot, particularly in combat sports where everybody kind of comes in and, you know, plays games in the athlete's room and don't let anybody invade your sleeping space. Keep that private. Keep that, that is your sanctuary, particularly if you're getting ready for competition. Do not let people come in and invade that. Keep them out. Uh, no screen time, at least one hour before bed and no light emitting screens in the bedroom. Again, this is just about initiating sleep and helping. So it kind of goes in tandem with the 90 minutes. And at number five, we have no caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, or heavy exercise three to four hours before bed. So I spoke about the caffeine, nicotine similar as well. Alcohol is an interesting one because whilst it might help you fall asleep, it actually disrupts your sleep after a couple of hours. So it causes lots of sleep, lots of fragmentation. And if you are exercising in the evening or after work, just be aware that some people may have a lot of difficulty falling asleep due to that kind of increase in cortisol and stress. So we see this a lot in some, we actually see, saw this a lot in um, a study we ran with master swimmers. So the average age is like 39. And the trend on this uh, Thursday night between seven and a half here. And I think the average time at sleep onset was like 11.30. So nearly three hours afterwards. Wow. So don't, don't expect that you can kind of, finishing the gym at half eight at night, come home, have your dinner and be asleep by half nine. It's yeah. not going to happen. Very few people that happens to. Um, don't go to bed hungry and thirsty. And at number four, so this is interesting. I spoke to a guy called Spencer Roberts. Yes, on my own podcast, I'll be releasing about four weeks this episode. But Spencer was talking about some of the research he's been doing in diet and sleep with athletes. And he found the same thing in a day of intermittent fasting where everybody's playing around with different timing and time restriction feeding. And when people didn't eat in the evening, particularly if you were highly active, so not having enough food before you go to bed, um, led to more awakenings and more sleep disruptions. But also there was a relationship there with sugar as well. So the more sugar that was consumed after dinner, lots more awakenings as well, which is quite interesting. So again, this area of sleep and athletic performance is constantly evolving, like, you know, week by week, month by month. Uh, number three, deal with stress during the day and early evening. Uh, I know my friend in Calgary, Amy Bender, um, who is a sleep scientist. She, she talks about this as well. I think it's a great, a great point. And I've done it as well with many people. So before you go to bed or at the end of your day, make a to-do list today for tomorrow. So instead of kind of going to bed and having all these things, I need to do this tomorrow. I need to bring this guy. I need to email this girl. I need to know like, oh, whatever it is in your head. So some people go, oh, you know what I do, Ian? I bring a notebook to bed. So when I wake up, I write it down. And I say, do you know what's even better? writing it all down before you go to bed. And what's even better than that is at the end of the day. So if you finish work at five o'clock, plan in the last 15 minutes to write down all these things, summarize your day, make sure your calendar is up to date for the week ahead. 
and then maybe or the next day and maybe on a Friday update your calendar for the following week as well. So make sure you're constantly planning out and you're trying to kind of, you know, plan and automate these things so you're not missing things because you just don't want to go to bed with, with these things on your, on your, on your mind, you know? So, you know, um, it can be quite, quite stressful. And the other thing as well is I get quite excited. Like with my work, for example, I go to bed and I'm thinking about, thinking about stuff. And, and because with a lot of the athletes I work with as well, I tend to get into the sport as well and, and, and sort of try and understand that and follow it. And for many of the sports, I'm a fan as well. So I start like my mind starts going crazy about all the things I can do. And so it might be a positive thing going to bed. It mightn't be like a stress in a negative sense. It, can, it might be positive. You might be getting quite excited about it, but you just need to take that time and, and focus on these kind of overall principles to help you fall asleep. Uh, in at number two, exercise daily and consume minimal caffeine. Stop caffeine at 12 noon. So if you're having trouble with sleep, uh, stop it at 12. And once you, consume it, once you stop consuming in six hours of bed, you should be okay. Now, the other interesting thing about exercise is that we've seen from numerous studies that, <clears throat> excuse me, that when we exercise each day, it helps with our sleep, also helps with our mental health. But early morning light exposure is probably one of the best things that we can do to help our overnight sleep. Again, people are probably listening to this going, what is he talking about? What, what's the morning got to do with nighttime? When we think about sleep, and you'll see what lots of these principles it's about the 24-hour cycle. So it's what we do when we get up is just as important as what we do before we go to bed. So numerous studies have shown that early morning light exposure, so the more natural light you can get in the morning first thing, the better it's going to be for your circadian rhythm. In trends, your circadian clock basically helps with your performance during that day and helps with your overnight sleep as well. And the reason being is this has got to do with what's called the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And the suprachiasmatic nucleus is basically just our body clock. When people say my body clock is off, this is what this is. This is a small cluster of cells that sits in the base of the hypothalamus in the brain. And basically it's regulated through the optic nerve. So as light comes into your eye, sends a signal here to the SCN. The SCN then sends a signal to the pineal gland that people may have heard about. The pineal gland, which releases melatonin or secretes melatonin, sends a signal that says, don't release melatonin, it's daytime. That helps with our performance over the day. So cortisol, body temperature goes up, melatonin isn't released. Then at nighttime, when there's no light around, then basically what happens is we have melatonin secretion. So when you travel across different time zones or you're a shift worker, this is what happens. It's this disruption of this body clock. You're getting light and dark cycles at the wrong time. And then that throws off all your other peripheral body clocks throughout your system. And so people like Diane Bovine at McGill University in Montreal has done some work on this, where this kind of body clock, central body clock, you know, basically controls off your digestive system, your circulatory system, cardiovascular system, so on. So all these things kind of get desynchronized. So that's why when you travel across multiple time zones, you feel hungry at odd times, thirsty, tired, bloated, you know, mood is up and down, all because this body clock is off and it might take a, a period of time to get used to that. And then in number one, routine. I know people don't like routine, but routine is king. So a lot of people, Thomas, when they have kids, are like, Okay, Johnny, six o'clock, you've had your dinner. It's time for a bath. Put some pajamas on. You know, there might be a little thing on TV that's, you know, a little beer going to bed that's waving good night at seven o'clock, whatever it is. You put them to bed. The room is nice and quiet. It's got maybe some stars on it. It's got some nice little music. You read them a story. And at half seven, Johnny, Johnny drifts off. We do that for a while. But what do we do for ourselves? We go back to the example. We're sitting downstairs, watching Narcos, drinking the wine on the iPad, on the iPhone, answering emails to our boss, catching up on an NBA, you know, talking about what we're going to do tomorrow because we're training for an Ironman or how we're going to play golf on the weekend. And we do the exact opposite that we do with kids. It's bizarre. So when I said to people, when you think about your own sleep, manage your own sleep, what would you do for a, a four-year-old? And people go, oh, well, I would do all the things I've listed. Why don't you do it for yourself? And they go, oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the same, it's the same thing. It's, you know, we, we do it for kids, do it for ourselves, but have that routine. And we often say it about kids as well. If Johnny's out of routine, you know, he's playing up during the day, people go, oh, he's out of his routine. We see it at work as well. A guy that we generally deal with or a girl we deal with at work or whoever it might be. They get pissed off sometimes and just like growl at us and go, what's wrong with them? Oh, he's been traveling lots for work, you know, you know, or he's been up all night doing meetings or he's been in early in the morning. There's a project there that's behind. He's been doing extra hours. So you can kind of start seeing that happening yourself. So getting back and focusing on your routine is key. 
So I often say to people, try to allow at least eight and a half hours in bed to try and get that seven to nine hours of sleep. So eight and a half hours in bed, try to do some sort of exercise or movement for an hour a day, try to consume no more than two and a half thousand calories. And if you do those kind of simple rules, generally you should feel okay for most people. And so that's kind of a, a rule, of, a rule of thumb there to follow for that one. So that's the top 10 sleep hygiene principles. Um, I can, uh, shoot these over to you, Thomas. You can put them in the show notes, put them up on your website. And, yeah. um, yeah, these are, these are kind of good rules to follow before you start looking, looking at sleep medication or, you know, even if you start talking to somebody like me, these are the things you should be talking, you should be doing yourself that you can really enact and enable and get a lot of improvement really quick. Well, you, you've talked a little bit about it already, but I want to get into this uh, chronobiology. I find this absolutely fascinating. Can you describe what chronobiology is and how we can use it to uh, enhance our performance? So chronobiology is really just looking at the, the time of day, like I was alluding to throughout this episode so far about using the time of day principles to really help in terms of performance because over a 24-hour period, there's a number of things happening. So um, if anybody's listening... If you go into um, Wikipedia, I'm going to pull this up so I make sure that I'm talking about the right thing. <laughs> if you go to Wikipedia and you type in chronobiology, C-H-R-O-N-O, biology, you will see a little wheel that'll come up with like um, that little drawing like of a Da Vinci with the man with the arms out. And you'll see a number of different things happening over a 24-hour period. The top half of that circle will go from like 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening. And then the bottom half of that circle will go from 6 in the evening till 6 in the morning. So let's look at the daytime activity, what's happening. So in the morning at 6.45, you get a sharp rise in blood pressure. Melatonin secretion stops. And then we have this high alertness, high testosterone secretion period happening between 9 and 12 o'clock in the morning. So this is a good time for decision-making, good time for cognitive tasks, probably a good time to go and ask your boss for a rise. Um, you know, if you want people to be involved in something cognitively, this is a good time. Then from 12 o'clock to about half two, we see that kind of dip. Then after lunch, we see best coordination time at half two, fastest reaction time, half three. And then at five o'clock, we see greatest cardiovascular efficiency and muscular strength. So for some people, when we talk about, is it better to exercise in the morning or the evening? Depends what you're trying to achieve. For some people, the morning might be the only available time. But if you're looking for PBs and you're looking for um, to really kind of maximize your circadian biology, this will be the time to do it. <clears throat> then we see in the afternoon into the evening between six and nine, we have the highest blood pressure and the highest body temperature. Now, this is an interesting period here, Thomas, because this is what's called the forbidden zone or the wake maintenance zone. This is the hardest time in a 24-hour period for people to sleep. So some people um, may have experienced this. They may be not work all day, been very, very tired, and then went, okay, I'm going to drive home, going to have my dinner, and I'm going straight to bed. I'm so tired. I'm just going to go straight to bed. And then when they're driving home, as the further to get away from work, it's like half six, they're thinking to themselves, man, I'm actually feeling pretty good. Maybe I'm not that tired. Maybe I just work with a bunch of assholes and the further I get away from them, the better I feel. Well, that may be true as well, but what you're doing is you're entering into this forbidden zone. And so it's really hard to initiate sleep. So from a chronobiology perspective, shift work perspective, travel, training times, and so on, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to initiate sleep here. Sometimes we see this in the shift work area. And I've done some work up there in Canada in Labrador and Montreal and over in Vancouver with shift work. And if you've got people like working, you know, six to six, and then you say, oh yeah, but the guys can go to bed at seven. They're not going to sleep. They're just not going to sleep. It's just not feasible for them to sleep in a, from a biological perspective. That's like me saying, Thomas, I'm going to wake you up every morning at three o'clock to, to play chess. Yeah. You're going to be just all over the place. It's just not going to happen. And this is the inverse. I'm going to make you sleep at this time. It's just not going to happen. So we don't see people really initiating sleep till after nine o'clock. Melatonin secretion starts. Then we see a number of different things happening. That's all those sleep stages overnight as well. So that's the kind of general kind of breakdown of our circadian rhythm or chronobiology over a 24-hour period. And it's really key. We've got a paper in review at the moment that we just did with ADA shift workers here in Western Australia on a mine site that does seven days, seven nights, and then has a week off. So it's a fly and fly out. 
I think generally like, you know, two countries for mining and oil and gas fly and fly out are probably Australia and Canada. And so yeah. some people may be, may be familiar with this in places like Fort McMurray and, and you know, fly and fly out in the oil and, the oil and gas areas. And so there might be working these type of rosters. So you go from days to nights is the best way to go. That's kind of what we call forward operating and they have some time off. But it's also the shift start times and finish times. And they will differ or depend on where you are. So we found like in parts of, you know, Canada that basically 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. were better than where in Australia, maybe 6 to 6 was better. So it depends on the light and dark cycles. Again, it gets back to this body clock that I was speaking about as well. So this is really kind of what chronobiology is. And if you go into Google and type in chronobiology, you will see that little wheel in there and you can find out a little bit more information about it. But as they say here, it's just that field of biology that examines this kind of timing, you know, and this process over this 24-hour period of circadian rhythm. That's kind of the simplest way of, uh, of, uh, of explaining that. And it's in trend or linked to the light and dark cycles. So it's how we act with light and dark, really. What's the relationship between mental health and sleep? Um, there is a relationship. This isn't an area that I study per se. I am doing some peripheral work on it with a student at the moment where we're looking at the relationship between um, IBS, sleep, and mental health. Interesting. Um, and we also look at um, mental health um, as a kind of a secondary or tertiary outcome, but it's not, it's not my forte. So I want to I wanna just make that clear up front. But from my understanding and my work in that area, and my, my, my sort of knowledge in that, there's definitely a link between it. And so when you talk about overall health, you talk about sleep, mental health, you know, physical health, there's definitely a relationship between these. Because if you're not sleeping at the right time, you know, you're going to feel kind of feel bad, like we said about, you know, that might lead to more mental health or common mental health disorders, depression, um, and so on. We also find out with insomnia, that can be very distressful, distressing for some people leading to anxiety. Um, and this is where you kind of go down that more like clinical psychologist route and, and work with people there, but there definitely is a link between it. So you see a lot of um, clinical psychologists. I know um, Jordan Peterson, who's a, obviously very controversial in the world, but as a clinical psychologist, he even said himself that when he dealt with clients, the first thing he would do, he, he would look at their sleep patterns and try to get them into a routine. So he'd go back to those sleep principles and he said, the first thing I always want to do is get people into a routine because that's, that's the kind of the basis for life. We want to have set the sleep time. We want to set, set the work time. We want to set the exercise time. And these are the kind of key fundamentals and building blocks for it. And um, I have had people on my podcast talk about, um, you know, mental health. So you can go back and listen to those episodes if people want to delve into that topic, but there's definitely a link between it. We also find that exercise helps as well. The sunlight helps as well. So there's definitely an interdependent relationship. And um, Russell Foster, who I had on as well, he does some work with people with, um, more, we'll say, a severe mental health um, illness, such as schizophrenia and bipolar. And interestingly enough, Russell was saying that you can actually see the onset of bipolar events by using wearable technology. So you can actually predict when the sleep cycle starts going from, let's say, 11 till 7. If it starts shifting out, then 12 to 8, 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock, you know, it starts moving, it starts getting a bit erratic, then that generally is the onset of, a, of, a, of an issue. Wow. So, yeah. There's definitely a link. So a lot of people, they have personal trainers, they have physical therapists, a dietitian, but sleep really impacts every aspect of our health, right? And this goes beyond golf. We're talking about our mental health, our, our physical health, our cognitive function. Can people reach out to you for a consultation and assessment? And if so, what kind of solutions do you provide? Uh yeah, uh, I generally deal with people that are look, really looking around athletic performance as opposed to just general performance. But you know, please reach out if you're if you're if you're struggling and you don't know what path to take. Well, path to take. I'll always recommend somebody and in your lo location. I might have a, a network there as well. But generally, I deal with athletes who want to look at recovery and performance for optimization. That's kind of the end I look at. Um, and so the solutions will be anything there from sleep disorder assessments, from, you know, looking at the wearable technology, like sleep behaviors over time, interface with the season. Um, it, it, it just really depends, but really, I think the overarching philosophy is really to just, you know, use sleep as a performance improvement strategy. And, um, you know, for some athletes, it might be longevity of career. They might want to keep playing until they're 40 after 30 years of age for other people. It might be just going through a bad period. Um, for, for teams, it might be, we just want to make sure that we're doing the right things. It might be more of an assessment. So there's lots of different things we do around that. So, you know, um, 
that's on that that's on that side and then from the so there's kind of like two parts to what i do there's the athlete side like i said that's true sleep for performance number four and then there's the industry side which is true mainly as consulting and um, where we work with industry directly around design and shift work roster patterns and so on and we you know in today's world we do that globally without traveling which is which is a great thing we can do through zoom and teams but um you know if people want to email me and ask me some questions i'm more than happy to do it. and if i get like lots of questions from different people i often do like a listener episode podcast where i can answer those as well or i can send you back some information and um, so i'm not going to turn you away but um just note that i generally deal with more like high-end athletes to around performance improvement um yeah and that's because <laughs> it gets quite expensive <laughs> the more time you deal with people so like it's just yeah yeah there is some really good resources you can you can avail of in your location before you want to come to someone like me. Um, and like, uh, there's lots of good stuff on my website there that people can avail of free. There's lots of podcasts, lots of blogs. Um, you can sign up for the newsletters, lots of info. I'm always putting out stuff. There's a ton of free information. I think on my YouTube channel, there's about 60 or 70 hours of content. There's about 150 hours of content on my podcast. And there's probably another hundred hours of me on different other podcasts. I've got a TEDx talk as well called Sleep In and Win. TEDx Perth from 2017. That's on my YouTube channel, Sleep for Performance. So there's lots of good resources out there that Thomas that people can use before they have to spend a cent. So don't think that you got to spend lots of money on sleep. It's actually free. It's not like cryotherapy or massage or, you know, the Terragun or anything else. Not to say they're bad products or anything, but I'm just saying that you can focus on sleep without spending money. You know, once you have a, the ability to lie down flat, <laughs> you can you can do this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. So we've talked a lot today about the importance of recovery and how the best athletes in the world, the ones that win championships, how they've optimized their recovery. And if you're looking to play professional golf or if you're looking to play in high level amateur competition, then you're going to need strategies in place to help you recover. So I want you to do two things. First of all, head over to trainfully.com if you haven't already and pick up the Train Fully Golf Fitness Program. The Train Fully program is designed to improve the quality of your movement, reduce wear and tear on your joints and connective tissues, and increase your capacity to play more golf. The second thing I want you to do is head over to sleepforperformance.com and check out all the resources Ian has on his website. If you think that you might have um, some sort of sleep disorder, reach out to him for a consultation. Ian, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your wisdom with us. I appreciate you. And I know our listeners really appreciate you as well. No problem, Thomas. It was, it was good to come on.